Post Reports is brought to you by Purina. Purina cares about a clean future. That's why they have hundreds of recipes crafted without artificial flavors or preservatives. On top of that, they are committed to using more recyclable pet food packaging. Learn more at Purina.com cares. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Sangman from The Post. Uh, hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Have you got a second this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, July 14th. Today, the problems with healthcare on college campuses, coronavirus deja vu, and boycotting Goya. Wait, so are now I forgot what's happening. Are you Oh, I'm ready. Whenever. Oh, she's, yeah, okay. <laughs> Jen Abelson is an investigative reporter for The Post. So Jen, as universities around the country are figuring out right now whether they'll be able to open up in person in the fall or how they'll be able to do that, what is one of the big complicating factors with the idea of putting students back on campus? During this pandemic, the ability of the campus health services to safeguard and care for students is going to be tested as never before, and many colleges appear unprepared for the challenges. The campus health system is like the Wild West. There are no national regulations. There are few state licensing of these campus health centers. They operate without a lot of scrutiny, and we've documented chronic problems in terms of quality and accessibility. And these are problems that go back way before COVID. The campus health system has been problematic for years, and I think the pandemic has brought into sharp focus the real challenges that are facing just everyday regular care. So I think it might be helpful for people to understand what the difference is between a campus healthcare facility and like an actual hospital or a doctor's office. So campus health clinics vary widely. So you have some universities like the University of Central Florida in Orlando, which has a multi-story building with comprehensive services, everything from dental care to sports medicine. Then you have some smaller faith-based institutions or private colleges that have a single exam room run by a nurse who has no license to prescribe medications. And then we also found hundreds of colleges that actually offer no medical services at all on campus. So there aren't any federal regulations or requirements about what kinds of services they should be able to provide and what kind of qualifications the people who work there are supposed to have? There's no national regulations. Most are not licensed by states. Only about 220 campus medical clinics out of the thousands nationwide are accredited by outside health organizations. And no one's actually monitoring the claims that some of these universities are making. So in one case, we found that Georgetown University was saying on its website that its student health center was accredited, which would mean that it met certain standards set by outside organizations. But it turned out it wasn't accredited, and they removed the claim after they were asked about it by reporters. So how many student health centers did you look at for this story? We tried to assess the landscape of roughly 1,700 four-year residential colleges across the United States. But you looked at 1,700 different student health centers? So what we did is we interviewed hundreds of students. We reviewed thousands of pages of medical records and lawsuits. And we actually were able to comb through over 5,500 reviews posted on Google of student health centers across the country. Wow. 
that is pretty extensive reporting. And what were the big takeaways from what you saw and the people that you talked to? So we found that college students reported they commonly waited days or weeks for appointments and that they were routinely provided lackluster care. We found dozens of students who ended up hospitalized, some near death, for mistakes they said that were made at on-campus clinics. But we also found real issues around accessibility. And so many students, including low-income individuals on Medicaid, were not able to afford care because it was too expensive on campus. So they were not getting treatment at all. And this is all before the pandemic. So this has really made it really difficult for students who are returning to campus to feel comfortable and confident that the colleges that they're going to are going to be able to safeguard their health. And I wonder how much the kind of tricky nature of student care centers is communicated to you or or understood by students on campus, right? Like thinking back to when I was in college, I think that my assumption was if I got sick, I went to the student health care center and then they were equipped to kind of give me what I needed or treat me in whatever way was necessary. And I don't think that students would stop to think about, well, what kind of accreditation does the center have? And do the people who work there, are they capable of providing treatment that I need? You're exactly right. I don't think college health clinics come up as a topic when students are deciding where to go. Student health clinics are often treated like any other service on campus, like a dorm or a bookstore. And so sometimes they're being overseen by people who are not medical professionals. So you really have this problem where it's not treated like one would consider an academic medical center or a hospital or even a doctor's office. But it's also compounded by, you know, the fact that college students are young. Many of them are living on their own for the first time. They have little experience advocating for themselves with medical professionals. So it creates this really tricky setup. And that's not to say that all campus health services are problematic. There are many incredibly dedicated professionals who are working there who want to help students. But sort of the absence of oversight and the difficulty that some of these clinics have in getting resources, especially when financial times are tough, makes it really hard for them to provide the best and most robust services possible for students who need it. So tell me more about some of the students that you talked to and the specific things that they experienced at their student healthcare center. One of the problems we heard consistently was that students would come in and report their medical symptoms and were told by the doctors or nurses on staff that they were not as serious as they thought. You know, you see a nurse before you see a doctor. Yeah. So I saw that nurse and I just said, listen, my, like, my only complaint is this horrific pain in my lower right side. At Kansas State University, we talked to uh, student Chloe Schreiber, who said that she had gone in with abdominal pain and the doctor pressed on her abdomen and she had been concerned she perhaps had appendicitis. And I have a really high pain tolerance. I have, I'm used to really bad cramps. Mm-hmm. So he's pressing down and I'm like, well, this hurts really badly, oh, but God. like, you know, yeah, I'm like, you know, this isn't, uh, the pain at the time was like, this isn't worse than I usually get with my cramps. He was just like, how does it feel? And I'm like, yeah, it hurts, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. what do you want me to say? Um, and so he does the price test and he's like, well, if you had appendicitis, you'd be screaming in agony right now. You don't have appendicitis. We're just going to send you home. Well, she called her mom after that because she was really upset and her mom was a nursing student. And she was just like, I don't care what the doctor said, like, go get yourself to the emergency room, Mm -hmm. you know, right now. 
and their blood test revealed that she, the 20-year-old, had appendicitis and she had emergency surgery that day to remove it. Yeah, it was that day. It was within like two hours of me arriving there. And her mom was, and Chloe, were incredibly upset at the risks that had taken place. And her mom sent an angry email to school officials saying the fact that a lazy doctor ignored the signs and sent her home is ridiculous. Your, your clinic could have cost my child her life. Kansas State declined to comment on Chloe's case, but a university spokesman said the center was ranked second in the nation for best health services by Princeton Review, which is a student ratings publication. And he said the university was making thorough plans to ensure safety for students when they return in August. So the first time I went to the healthcare center, they gave me a little sheet that said caring for your cold. And so it's a whole list of what to do, but they circled to take a decongestant like Sudafed. Gracie Gelkis um, was a 19-year-old freshman in 2016 when she visited the student health clinic at the University of Arkansas Health Center in Fayetteville. So after the first time I left the health center, I felt bad, but was trying to get over it because the doctor said nothing was wrong. But it got progressively worse. I could not break the fever. And so the next morning I called I knew something was wrong and that I needed to go back. She went twice over the course of two days uh, with increasingly concerning signs. And she said the nurse missed signs of meningitis and she nearly died. My memories are kind of a blur in the emergency room. I remember certain things. but She ended up hospitalized for several weeks. And she said she never received an apology from anyone at the health clinic, only a bill for several hundred dollars. So meningitis is a very time-sensitive disease. There are clear warning signs like stiff neck, high fever. And so even if... They couldn't tell I had meningitis straight off the bat when I went in. The high white blood cell count should have been an indicator that something was wrong. And if they didn't know what it was, they should get a referral to somewhere else. The university said the college communicated fully with Gracie and her family in 2016, but they declined further comments citing privacy laws. How common is it to have these cases of students being misdiagnosed? It's really hard to tell. And medical mistakes happen at all places, at hospitals, at doctor's office, and on campus clinics. I think one of the issues here at campus clinics is like there's really no reporting system or quality improvement that's required so that when mistakes do happen, that clinics are forced to examine the process and fix it in the future. So one of the buckets of concerns we saw were these misdiagnoses. But in addition, we saw these concerns around the lack of accessibility. So I have tried to go to the student health center for various reasons, uh, whether it's for uh, a chronic illness, trying to do like pain management or just finding some sort of like medication access and alleviating some of my symptoms. We talked to one student, Trissa Chakraborty, at Indiana University, who began attending in 2017, and she's on Medicaid, and she's a low-income individual, and she's got chronic health issues, including asthma. Every time I've gone on or any time I've kind of come across our student health services, I did have to pay it out of pocket, and that's because they don't accept Medicaid or even Indiana's version of Medicaid. And And every time she gets sick, she said she has to make the same calculation. Is it worth going to a student health center? Um, There's been many times where if I did want to go for one reason or another, I kind of actually just just kind of avoided it because I'd have to pay out of pocket. And that's just not something I could do as a student. And now she said she avoids seeking medical care entirely or she goes to the ER every time she needs help. Trissa said she's dreading the choices that she's going to have to make if she gets sick during the pandemic and said that sometimes we have to sacrifice our health because financially we may not be able to afford it. 
At Indiana University Health Center, the executive director said that no student is ever turned away and the college has emergency funds to help those who need financial assistance to cover the cost of services. He said the university is actively pursuing how to accept Medicaid and other insurance. If we are operating under the assumption that there are going to be students who are returning to their campus and living in dorms and going to classes this fall, how is that going to play out with COVID? What you see right now is a lot of university presidents publicly announcing that they're going to be bringing students back to campuses. I think the Chronicle of Higher Education shows that uh, they've been looking at more than a thousand colleges and more than 80 percent of them are planning to resume in-person or a hybrid model of instruction where students will be on campus. And publicly, they're saying taking all these steps to ensure the safety. But what we've seen is privately, college health officials are really concerned. They've been talking about that they don't have enough testing. They don't have enough personal protective gear. They don't have enough rooms to isolate students if there is an outbreak on campus. So there's a bit of a dissonance between what is being said publicly and what's happening and being discussed privately. And I think the other thing that's concerning to students, especially students who've been misdiagnosed and attempted to fight these colleges and get them to take responsibility, is that College leaders are also advocating for these protections at the federal and state level for many COVID-related lawsuits, which some people question what does the message that gets sent when, when colleges are trying to protect themselves from anyone suing them if someone gets sick or they mishandle problems when there are outbreaks because there are going to be outbreaks. Students are going to get sick. We've already been seeing this at students who've returned to campuses. And so it's inevitable that they're going to get sick. And I think there's just a real concern about how this is going to play out. Jen Abelson is an investigative reporter for The Post. This story was also reported by Nicole Dunka. The Post is collecting accounts from young people about their experiences using their campus health center. If you want to contribute, we'll have a link to that submission page at postreports.com. So, William, you have been covering the COVID outbreak from the very beginning since it started here in the U.S. And now we're at this strange point where it feels like all the problems that we saw at the beginning of this pandemic are happening all over again. It is. It's frustrating just from a personal level. It's frustrating as a you know, American having to go through this. It's also frustrating as a reporter, like we're writing the same stories we wrote in March. We're having to say, you know, there's shortages on masks, hospitals are overwhelmed, cases mounting, people dying, all the same stories. And it's challenging to like do that in a way that's both not repetitive, in a way that's helpful to the public and explains why are we back here again? I'm William Wen, I'm a national health reporter for The Washington Post. So you mentioned shortages of masks, and I think you're referring to N95 masks and the masks that health professionals need when they're treating patients in hospitals. Why are we seeing a shortage in PPE when there was so much time and effort trying to secure this supply in the first place? 
It's a combination of things. We never really solved the problem. Imagine a dam that's kind of breaking and you're sticking your fingers in the dikes and the little holes, but you never actually do a structural infrastructural repair of that dam. And so that's what's happening here is, for example, you have massive amounts of production has been ramped up, but demand has also gone up. So you have in March, for example, all the focus going to hospitals in New York, especially Detroit. But now with reopening, a whole bunch of people need PPE. You need PPE like N95 masks in nursing homes. You need it in kind of businesses that are reopening, sometimes janitorial staff in sensitive areas and hospitals and, and other settings. So like the demand for PPE has just gone up incredibly. And we have not as a country, it's like we were talking about masks for so long and then suddenly we stopped and like, ah, oh, we solved that problem, but we never really did. Especially because the time scale of this has started to go on for a lot longer than I think many people expected. That when we were thinking about masks in March and April, it was like, oh, we're going to need these for the next few months. But now it's looking like, no, we need a steady supply of these N95 masks for the foreseeable future. You know, I was talking all last week to nurses, hospitals, doctors, and kind of the same things are happening. You know, there was kind of a pause where we kind of bought ourselves time and we could have ramped up manufacturing, especially domestic manufacturing. And right now you're seeing hospitals bidding against each other again and states bidding against each other. And the nurses have told me they're reusing masks for as long as weeks at a time, like multiple weeks of the same mask. It's just kind of crazy. They're like one doctor, they created this, there was a bunch of doctors who banded together to create this um, movement called hashtag get us PPE. Just a bunch of doctors saying like, we as doctors, let's get together, let's Let's like put in orders. Let's figure out supply lines. They were telling me we're screaming at the top of the lung. Someone will realize we're drowning. And basically, like four months later, nothing's happening. The, the kind of requests they've been getting from hospitals are at all time high. And it's just like an incredible story of like American failure. And then at the same time, we're starting to see the same dynamic happen with testing, where at the beginning of the pandemic, there was this huge effort to try to rapidly expand our ability to test people for coronavirus. But now it seems like the the testing situation is getting worse. Yeah, if you think about where we were at testing, it's kind of incredible. We were doing kind of in the in March, maybe tens of thousands of tests a day, a very small amount given our population. Now we're doing some Somewhere like 600,000 tests a day. Um, last week, we reached 700,000, which is a lot. But the problem is you have all these tests going into labs and they just can't process them. So you, the turnaround times are incredible. They're, you know, five to six on average at some commercial labs. You have some... Five to six days. Yeah, five to six days. And some are doing like eight to nine days, which render the tests hmm. absolutely useless from a perspective of controlling the virus, contact tracing. One epidemiologist put it in a really great metaphor. You know, all these other countries, they've succeeded in doing the system of test, trace, isolate. And we can't even get our testing up off the ground. It's kind of like doing a relay race where you're stumbling right out of the blocks. You never really get to recover in a way that can significantly kind of like contain the virus. 
And why are there these significant delays? It's very complicated. There's no one reason. I I was talking to labs all last week. They're so, so frustrated because they really do want to help. But they were saying it's not even short. When you're talking shortages, it's not shortage of one thing. There's shortages at different times of swabs, these chemical reagents, of machines, of pure staffing, of people simply to like enter the results and get them back. It's a shortage across the board of and, and delays across the board. So they add up like at every step. A lot of these labs were telling me at the heart of it is we just need like federal coordination there. No one even knows what the average delay time is state by state. Like say you wanted to improve a metric, you know, average turnaround time for tests. You actually need to know what that average is so you can kind of address what where the problems are and get that average up. So no one even knows really what the average delay by state is right now. And so do we know if some of these reports of delays and also long waits to just be able to get tested, if they are regionally focused or in the states that are being worst hit by coronavirus right now, or is this a completely national problem? There are especially shortages in places like Texas, Florida. You're you're seeing surges there of demand for tests because the cases are so high. But just like the butterfly effect, basically, if you have a huge demand in Texas that draws all the chemical reagent supplies there, you have shortages going as far as New York then because of that. And so it is all interconnected, which is why people are keep pushing for this federal coordination. I should note, we also talked to the White House and we asked them all this. We brought them very pointed criticisms from labs about what they're doing or lack of what they're doing. They said, no, we are meeting all the demands in states. They wouldn't acknowledge that there are supply shortages, which is kind of mind boggling. And they said, we are doing all of these things. We've put out all of these um, supplies to the states and it's up to the states to distribute them. And they also blamed a lot of this on state efforts, which is Part of their strategy, they said the responsibility lies with the states. So now they're blaming the states for any kind of failures that are going on. So how is this going to continue to unfold, especially now that we're seeing states like Arizona and Texas and Florida that are really hitting their peak now as these problems are starting to get worse? You know, we're obviously a flawed country. When you look at our country versus any other country in the world almost at this point, we are doing the worst. And it's it's all these things, failure of leadership, our healthcare system, our public health systems were just massively underfunded. But if you say that, for example, this was a perfect storm, like, or this is a especially flawed system, what is the answer? What do you do with that? It's kind of like, what do you do with a problem like Maria? Instead, insert United States instead. I, I've been looking in a lot of different places for answers. And one answer that came from, you know, I was doing these stories on on overdose deaths and drug overdoses and people who relapse during the pandemic. And they have this very central concept to the work being done in opioids is harm reduction. Like, act as if the reality is the reality and try to deal with it the way it is. So that means like needle exchanges And I think maybe we need to do something like that. Like, we can't keep comparing ourselves to South Korea and Germany. It's clear we're not South Korea and Germany. We have to deal with reality as it is. We have to add first kind of like AA, right? Like, hi, my name is America. I'm kind of a failed country when it comes to coronavirus. And then try to address the problem that, you know, given I know this is how I behave, what do I do going forward? Some people say, well, you know, we just have to 
get new leadership in. This often happens in election years, right? But even if a new leader comes in, like some of these things are not totally at the, you know, can be laid at the feet of White House. They're individual decisions, you know, multiply individual decisions by like 378 million and that's America, you know? It's not clear to me, I have to admit, like how we dig ourselves out of this hole. William One is a science reporter for The Post. And now, one more thing. Before this week, when most people thought about Goya, they might have thought about really delicious food that they'd eaten with their family. Goya produces a number of foods and products that are staples in houses around the country and around the world, uh, particularly Hispanic households. It might be rice, black beans in a can, or some really delicious spices or adobo seasonings. These are things that people rely on and really love, and, and there's a lot of brand loyalty when it comes to Goya. My name is Emily Heil, and I'm a reporter covering national food trends and news. So things really changed when the CEO of the company, Robert Unanwe, came to the White House, where he appeared alongside President Trump in the Rose Garden. And Unanwe had some very complimentary things to say about Donald Trump. All truly blessed at the same time to have a leader like President Trump, who is a builder. Of course, that angered a lot of people. That clip, you know, got circulated around social media. And so we have an incredible builder and we pray. We pray for our leadership, our president, and we pray for our country that we will continue to prosper and and to grow. And there was a boycott underway. Of course, lots of Hispanic people in the U.S., Trump is anathema to them. It has to do with his rhetoric, uh, things that he said about about immigrants being rapists or criminals, also his policies, family separation, the wall. So this was really jarring, this juxtaposition for a lot of Hispanic Americans. This brand that they loved, um, the head of it, was uh, praising President Trump. I talked to a chef who said that Goya is sort of like Nike for Hispanic Americans. My name's Eric Rivera. I'm the chef owner of Otto here in Seattle. To me, it's something that's just been around. It's something that I've never questioned as being not part of the culture. And so hearing these comments was like seeing the jump man with a MAGA hat on. And then I looked at what he said, and then I was, you know, flatly just, <laughs> you know, what is this guy doing? Food-related boycotts can be relatively easier to stick with than other types of boycotts. If people don't want to go to Papa John's, for example, because they didn't like what the ex-CEO had to say about Black NFL players, they could just go to Pizza Hut. But the difference here is that it's a little bit harder for people to imagine their pantries and their meals and their cooking without Goya products. Obviously, boycotts depend on people being consistent, it being widespread, and it being sustained. So it might be harder for some people to sustain a boycott against Goya, in particularly because in smaller towns or in rural areas, Goya foods might be the only Hispanic foods available to people. 
Goya, just for that reason, that it crossed over from bodegas into mainstream chain restaurants, really meant that it occupies a particular place for Hispanics um, and Hispanic Americans. People really saw it as, as an example of really forming their identity in some ways and validating them. So as soon as the boycott was sort of announced and on, people immediately began thinking about alternatives. And they started sharing recipes, maybe family recipes from their abuelas. They might be sharing lists of Hispanic-owned businesses that offer alternate products, smaller companies, local companies. There's a lot more points of view with Latin American cuisine. I think Goya did a really good job at marketing to the masses and giving something that was of that esteem. But there's a lot more stories to be told. There's a lot more points of view. Um, there's a lot more small businesses. You know, so if there's somebody else that can kind of come with their own brand and their own flavor, then I think we're all better off. And this is just another sort of example of that, where you're seeing that so many choices that you make um, really can be political and that they can have power. Emily Heil writes about national food trends for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. We are doing an audience survey, and we want to hear from you. We know that a lot of people listen to this podcast, but we want to know more about who you actually are, how and when and where you listen, and what kinds of stories you find most compelling. And if you take the survey, you might win a $100 gift card. To do that, go to WashingtonPost.com slash podcast survey. And thank you so very much. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Thank you.